I'm Dr. Dillard, I'm CEO of Institute of Progressive Sustainable Development. Our offices are located in Seattle, Washington, and Atlanta, Georgia. This, this, is, this is Diversified, Diversified. Game. 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 A podcast giving entrepreneurial advice from a diverse and inclusive perspective with Kelly. He may agree, he may oppose, and it's more than just race, it's about, you know, ideas. So, let the game begin. It's Kellen, and today on Diversified Game, this is going to be some of, it's my favorite topic to talk about. Africa and the progress, and those who are pushing Africa to the next limits who want to invest. I have Dr. Dillard. Now, that's medical Dr. Dillard for y'all, and he's also pilot, Captain Dillard, and all the other things that he can do. Um, He can ride horses, but he is representing right now his institution for progressive, sustainable development. And I got word of it from my friend who looks like he could have been in the Matrix. And he said, I'm going to Africa, Kelly. You'll be proud of me. And he said, Dr. Dillard was the reason. So, Dr. Dillard, how are you doing today? I'm good, Kelly. What about you? All is good. All is blessed, man. Um, I'm black-tastic, as many like to say. And I just want you to let the people know, what is IPSD all about? ISP. ISPD, IPSD, is Institute for Progressive Sustainable Development. And it, it was created uh, from an idea that we wanted to, I, like I'm, I'm a doctor, medical doctor. I travel all around the world and I've worked in a lot of different clinics. And I, you know, a lot of us, sometimes we become doctors because we want money. Then we get to a certain age that we just want to do something for humanity. So I wanted to pick a pet project that, a legacy project, I'd call it, where I wanted to see what kind of effect I could have uh, in Africa. And so we decided with the IPSD thing was progressive sustainable development because we see a lot of sustainable development projects in the uh, African continent. And people go in, they drill a well, or they do some humanitarian aid, and it doesn't really affect uh, the majority of the people in those countries. So I wanted, I, I wanted to be progressive sustainable development, which would be development where we go in, where we actually um, create projects that would have a big impact on the citizens in a country. So our projects are more like uh, infrastructure projects, uh, big, massive projects, uh, dams, uh, power, uh, manufacturing, uh, seafood, cannon, food cannon uh, uh, plants. Um, uh, Those are things where we create employment in the different uh, nations as well as create help to create a middle class. Uh, we felt that Africa didn't have a middle class. It had a rich class and then it had a poor class. And the, because uh, in Africa, you have the, the leaders of the country, they create partnerships with uh, corporations from the West, whether European or American. So they go in, they create these corporations, and they become partners in the corporations and board members, and then they receive uh, share 
uh, stock 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 shares from their corporation, and so they actually reap all the benefits. And the reason why they do it is because you don't have to worry about the people voting for you uh, like we do here in America. You know, if, if if I don't pay if I pay my taxes and you don't do what I want, then we can do recalls on you uh, and take the position away. In Africa, you can't do that. So you just have to wait till the next election come around. But if I'm poor and um, I'm just basically living on basic substance and election comes around, I don't care who's voting. If anybody offered me $10, they can have my vote. And that's how it's done in most of the countries, some of the countries in Africa. I'm not saying in all of them. So if we create a middle class, then the middle class would have a vote and then they could hold the leaderships accountable. And a lot of uh, like hospitals, roads and bridges and infrastructure that countries really need in order to sustain a middle class and the government, governments will be compelled to do that because they have a middle class. So that's why we chose to do the larger projects. And those projects are supported by um, the US governmental agencies like State Department, the uh, Department of Commerce, the United Nations, and we utilize private funding, and we also utilize public funding from um, uh, institutions like the uh, NGO. So let me ask you this, because you know we, we've talked offline, and you are just like interesting all all the way. How did you know you could do this? Because you've gone to law school. You've gone to medical school. You've gone to Dartmouth. I mean, what can't you do? What are, who, like, who are you? Somebody would say, what superhero are you? And what do you have <laughs> to prove? And saying, let me go to, let me go to Africa to do this because I've done everything else. You know, I've flown planes. I rode horses. Like, what drives you to do all of these things? Well, you know, I've met quite a few people in different professions <laughs> that says like you don't know what you want to be when you grow up <laughs> <laughs> and so I bore really easy you know I, I, I'm a mensa uh, bore easily and if something doesn't hold my attention long enough then I move on to the next thing which is a good bad thing and it can also be a good thing um, so by I understand how government works, right? I've been an attorney. You learn how government works. And when you're traveling around the world and you think about the things that you learned about government and how it works and how it's affecting different places that you visited, then you can sort of put it all together and you, you realize there's only a top level of government Top, top, top level of what we call quote unquote world order. And when you understand how that top level works, then you're able to figure out how the things that you've learned along the way, how it might enhance that top level status of government leaders. So we know that government gets, from, uh, uh, developing nations get government from the IMF and the United Nations, uh, the, US, the US government, and some of the European governments like France and um, Great Britain and the Norwegian countries. 
all put money into uh, sustainable development or development in developing nations, specifically the one we're talking about today is Africa. I mean, it's the continent is Africa, it's 54 nations there. And so then you, once you understand that what's really going on in geopolitical is that because of the natural resources that they take away from the country, that what they put back into the country is sort of guilt money. And it makes the, the corporations feel that they are making a contribution for what they've taken out, even though their contribution is substantially lower than what they're taking out. Um, then you come in and you say, well, I want to make this better. And how can I make it better? And I think one of the biggest problems in the geopolitical uh, sphere with companies trying to create uh, development opportunities in Africa is they look at the whole continent of Africa, which is 104 billion people. And when you look at the world itself, it's just not enough money. If we put all of the economies together, uh, the biggest economy is the U.S. economy of $23 trillion. So if we put all those world's economies together, it's not enough money to go in and uplift 54 countries. So then uh, we looked at how they did in Europe, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> when the United States blew up Europe, blew, blew Europe into smithereens after world, in World War II, and then they decided they wanted to go back and rebuild it. At that time, uh, at the end of the war, they destroyed 5 million apartments and homes and they had 12 million refugees. And so they came up with the Marshall Plan. And what the Marshall Plan did was it looked at the countries individually. They created a plan to, to support them and they created a fund and they created a fund to, so that they could read, to make the help the business community have a resurgence in Europe. The United States was going to do all the manufacturing like it's China doing today. The U.S. was going to do all the manufacturing. Then the uh, Euro European companies would do all, all the buying of the products. European companies didn't have any capital. So the U.S. created a fund, made loans of dollars to the European nations. And then they instituted a business exchange program where they took the Europeans and brought them to American corporations, taught them uh, American business principles and policies. They went back to Europe with what they call special invoice. And those invoice, they were from American corporations and they just would be there for two or three years to help the European businesses. It's uh, implement those principles they had learned in the U.S. So we looked at that and we looked at, okay, so what do you, this is how Europe, uh, the resurgence of Europe after it had been blown to smithereens. Then we looked at what they did in Asia. They did the same thing in Asia with the Japanese car auto manufacturing. Those plants were, uh, and I think a lot of them still have American shareholders that uh, some of the Japanese like Mazda, Toyota, but they brought the Japanese over to the United States taught them how to make, build cars. The Japanese went back to Japan and then the American companies built the factories. They had like what they call build, own, and then uh, transfer, what they call bought. So they built those plants. They, they 
being a United States companies held them for so many years before they turned them over to the Japanese industry. Did the same thing in China. Did the same thing with airplanes. Born airplane company, they, they went over and they established and taught the Chinese uh, factories how to build airplane parts. And so we see that these models have been created all around the world, but they were never created in Africa. And so because Africa is such a large continent, we decided that we need to do it one country at a time. And so it's an experimental project. So we decided that we would pick a, lot, a small, one of the small countries in Africa, which was Sierra Leone because it has 7 million people. And by creating it in a small company, and then you're gonna refine your model. You work on your model, you refine the model. And then when you, once you perfect that model, you take that model and then you can move it out into other countries to help those countries to develop. So this was the impotence and the thought process of the Institute for Progressive Sustainable Development. Uh, we just took a little bit from uh, different things that we've seen happen throughout history uh, in development and try to institute that into one model to uh, take into Africa. Well, with all the accomplishments that you have what's the driving you know the force is it that you know some people say oh i'm doing it for my kids i'm doing it for my wife i'm doing it for my grandkids like what makes you say okay i want to do all these things because to even get into law to go to law school become a lawyer and you know to possibly help people but then to go into medicine to help people <laughs> and now to go to africa what's that push that says I have to do this because you could easily just, you know, be vacationing around the world like we see many Instagram uh, influencers do. What pushes you? Well, when I was growing up, and I'm, I'm, uh, I, it was eight of us and I was the ninth sibling. Uh, in my household, there, uh, father, my father wouldn't allow us to say the word can't. Uh, if I say that I can't do something, the first thing to come out of his mouth is no such thing as can't. And so even up to today, when I want to do something, and it's like I, 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 I hear, I still hear his voice saying, I can't say, I can't do it. Um, and um, so, and, and then I had a sister who passed away, which she was, had great influence on me. And I remember when she was in the hospital bed, she always wanted to be a, a, a model, but she never went after it. And when she was passing away on the hospital bed, she made me promise her that I would never say, I wish I could have been, or I, I, I should have been this, I should have been that. And so I think those things drove me to reach for, for heights and and to, to excel, and then the desire that I, I didn't want to be ignorant of a lot of things that I had interest in. Like with law, you know, I was interested in law because I came up in the civil rights movement. So I was interested in law because I felt you need to know law. Um, I felt, and it was kind of looking for absolutes. Uh, when I went to law school, was studied law, and um, 
my interest was constitutional law. Then I turned into business law. And then I decided I want to work for the United Nations. And uh, then a couple of cases that we studied where just told me that there was no absolutes for law. Law is the uh, experience of the interpreter. That's how you interpret the law is from your experiences. And so you can have two people who come from two different experiences, they're gonna interpret the same sentence in law differently. And so there was no absolutes there. And I ended up um, working for a company in Seattle, Perkins and Coy was the largest law firm on the West Coast at the time with 450 lawyers. And we were on three continents, Europe, Asia, and the United States with offices in the US and Seattle, San Francisco and New York City. And I worked in uh, business law first, and then I ended up in family law and saw how it's all a business. <clears throat> it's all a business. And uh, like we do pro bono services for people who did not have uh, funding to for attorney. And those cases had to be uh, open and shut immediately. But when we did cases for the really wealthy clients, uh, we wouldn't allow to close the cases because they might have been worth $30 million and their senior partners felt that they could take them for two or 3 million out of their 30 million. So you couldn't close those cases, you had to keep those cases open. So I had, I had trouble going to sleep at night, taking advantage of people, whether they were rich or poor. And poor people cases were closed. They shouldn't have been closed. In rich people cases was open, they shouldn't have been open, they shouldn't have been closed earlier. And so I just felt that I was part of a, uh, a, a, a part of a money scheme. And I, I mean, I like money and, and I'm driven like to have money like everybody else is, but I don't want to take advantage of people for money. And so uh, I worked in law for about three and a half years and then I went into engineering and I, I had, uh, did my own uh, engineering firm. But, but that's, those were the things that kind of drove me and the thing to help, help others. You know, I felt I, I've been blessed in my life, I think, and pretty much had everything I ever wanted to have that man could make. And I found no satisfaction in any of it. And I just thought that my satisfaction, I always tell people all the time, if I help an old lady get off a bus, the bus is bus stop and she's trying to get off the bus. If I help her off that bus and then somebody offered me a million dollars, I'll take the million dollars, but I get more satisfaction off of helping that old lady off the bus. That's what helps me sleep at night. <laughs> no, you know. So, so I, I guess the answer to your question is I'm, I'm just driven to help others, and I always have been, and I find satisfaction. Wow, that that's a great, you know, just I, I love to hear the story because with social media, we always see great. Hey, I retired at 25, and I retired my mother, but folks are working hard every day, so somebody can buy something from them, but they've retired, right? whatever retirement looks like, but you have proven yourself, not just in business, but in academics and, and even in your, um, your works with this project of bringing people 
who've never even been to Africa and getting them there. What can people do, that everyday person who got their, you know, stimulus check, whatever that amount was, and says, I want to go to Africa. I want to learn. I want to be a part of this. I don't have, you know, $50,000 to my name. Heck, I barely have 5000 right, or 500 What can they do inside of your program that can not just benefit their life, but the whole organization as a whole? Well, you know, we realize that, you know, in our country, most African-Americans doesn't have, it could cost, to go to Africa, spend a week or two weeks there, it's going to cost you five or $10,000. Uh, most African-Americans, average African-Americans got about $71 in their savings account versus the dominant white culture that has average to 370000 in their savings accounts. So we can't really take those type of vacations or those types of trips unless we save up forever. And then we have other expenses that we got to, that we encourage as home, just living expenses and gas and lunch at work and going to work, childcare, that we probably would never really even get a trip like that. A, a lot of us take trips into the Caribbean and you can get round trip tickets there for about 350 bucks. Uh, when you're going to Africa, your round trip tickets are going to cost you at the minimum about $2,500. Um, so, we realized that. And then we realized that in our program, in order to accomplish what we want to accomplish, we also realized that uh, the Europeans and the whites in America, Americans are not very adventuresome. And so in, in whites, because they live in a dominant culture here in the US, they just don't want to go no place where they feel like they're a minority. And going into Africa, they feel like a minority in, in deep dark. Well, I don't like to call it the deep, dark Africa. It's sub-Saharan Africa. They feel they're, they're going to be a minority. And being a minority, as we know, in the United States is very uncomfortable. We deal with it every day we walk outside the house. Okay, so the thing was, now, in order to develop Africa, it's going to take almost an army of African-Americans that's in the diaspora to go to Africa taking their technology and their skills into Africa and sharing their, those skills and technology. Africa is a whole different culture. It's a whole different mindset. It's nothing like the American mindset, especially the American business mindset. So our thing was, so how do we get African-Americans to Africa? So we looked at, okay, but they don't have any money. Uh, they don't own any airlines. Uh, the chance of them going is slim to none. Then we came up with, okay, so African-Americans work in the American corporate corporations. And some of us are in executive positions, some of us are in management positions, and some of us are just ordinary employees. Now, those companies that we work in their products are created from minerals from Africa. 40% of everything in the world, pretty much, gets these minerals from Africa. Like they used to say, well, such and such was the bread, the, the, uh, Nebraska is the uh, bread basket of America. Africa is the bread, the bread basket of wealth. 
Okay, there is no wealth without Africa. Uh, largest continent, uh, it's got 60% uh, of all the world's natural resources. So those corporations that exist today that creates these CEOs that's making millions of dollars, salaries each year, uh, those minerals are coming from Africa. So we felt that if these employees in these American corporations could convince their upper level managers Again, as far as up to their, their CEOs, which we also contact CEOs of uh, Fortune 1000 companies, and uh, put pressure on them to expand their businesses into Africa, which means they're, they're going to expand the footprint. They're going to expand their business footprint into Africa. And as they, when they ex uh, make that expansion, they're going to use African-American employees. Now, the corporations pick up the expenses of the trips. So now African-Americans can go to Africa on the corporation's dime. And they're also going to ex expand the corporation's footprint. And then while they're there, they can also locate potential wealth opportunities where they can start their own individual businesses and then become acclimated to the culture and become part of the community. And which in turn means that they're hiring more of, uh, local citizens of the nations and helping to build a uh, middle class, as well as building wealth in the African-American community here in the United States. So basically it's a win-win situation all the way around. The corporations are winning because they're expanding. So corporation is actually making, uh, say, uh, $500 billion a year uh, in, in their sales. They expand into the African continent. You got 1.4 billion people. Uh, the market there, a young market between 75% uh, between the ages of 17 and 35 years old, which is, it means that they're a consumer a market. So the corporation says has annual sales over 500 billion just here in the U.S. now has the potential to increase that 500 billion to a million by expanding their footprint into Africa. Um, they're going to bring in more employees, African-American employees, because that's going to be their base, initial base for going into Africa, implementing the, uh, the expansion of their businesses. And the African uh, people is going to gain uh, wealth opportunities because they're going to have to partner up. You can't just take a business into Africa without partnering up with an African. Uh, like, like we concentrate on Sierra Leone. So if you go to Sierra Leone as IBM, IBM has to find a a Sierra Leonean business partner, where IBM takes 35% uh, ownership of the company and the Sierra Leone business person takes 35%. So now you create wealth in Sierra Leone and uh, as well as bringing in uh, new employees. And another good thing about it is because um, so the, 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 the schools and, and the education base there is not up to our standards. So it's going to be better for that corporation to bring in African-American employees who actually can uh, create their product and teach, teach their business while they're there in Sierra Leone as they educate the uh, Sierra Leone. What are the first steps for somebody who is in that you know, position to tell um, the president of the company? And I'm taking this from personal experience. When I work with Synology in Bellevue, and I, I am the only PR guy, you know, in the whole, you know, marketing, whatever department and saying, hey, president, um, I see that we have people signed up who are platinum certified in Africa. 
I can help expand that because I have connections. What should somebody in that position right now tell their um, president of the company? Because I was told we're not ready to move into Africa. And this was a Taiwanese company. And we know they do business a little different, but so do the U.S. And people are sometimes intimidated because you could pretty much write your own ticket if you're the only one who's knowledgeable about something going to Africa. So what would be the steps to have that person pitch it to their, you know, uh, president of the company, owner of the company? Well, CEOs, upper level management, they understand, they only understand dollars and cents, okay, and shareholder uh, obligations. Uh, so what you want to do first is you're going to look at the products that your company provides, and then you're going to look at how uh, it's almost like doing a feasibility study. You're going to look at the, you're going to look at the, couple, the country you're trying to go into. And you're going to want to see uh, what's their GDP, uh, how much disposable income the average person has, how much that they can actually afford to buy the product that your company has. And then when you write all of that up and you present it in a memorandum, you can uh, go through your next level supervisor. And then if you don't get no feedback from that, then I would go above that person and then um, I would go all the way to, to get to the top. Another way is to go through human resources. Another way is when you are out on lunches with your uh, friends, African-American friends, and you convince them that you collectively come together because every corporation today has what's called social responsibility. Uh, most, of, most of them, the social responsibility policy is attuned to uh, development in the U.S., helping the food banks and uh, United Way uh, support. And each of, like, if you work in a Fortune 1000 corporation, they have what's called charitable giving, okay? And then the person who's in charge of charitable giving are the ones who select where the funding is going to go. So each corporation has slated. And they have a person, uh, they have their diversity manager, who works with uh, human resources and also works with charitable giving. So that diversity manager uh, helps charitable giving to decide how they're gonna fund some uh, minority organizations. Like in Seattle, there's an organization called the, uh, and, and here in Georgia too, where I'm at today, there is an organization called the Minority Supplier Development Council. So the Minority Supply Development Council works with the SBA. I'm gonna speak real slowly on this in case people are taking notes. So they work with the SBA, the Small Business Administration. So the, the, the largest corporations in a city, be it Seattle, Houston, uh, St. Louis, Chicago, the large corporations become memberships with the Minority Supplier Development Council. The Minority Supplier Development Council is working with the SBS Small Business Administration. So those corporations, like here in Atlanta, you have Delta. So Delta would take 100, almost $200 million a year. And that money is slated for minority companies. A lot of the banks, the average bank in the US, Chase Bank, Bank of America, 
in each of the large cities, they have about $200 million a year that they spend with minority companies. Okay, and that's just for, that's not part of charitable giving. That's part of the diversity spending, they call it. Okay, and so if they have that just for diversity spending, you can imagine they probably have three times that for um, development, uh, uh, spending for development. Um, so you have to work with your human resources department. You have to work with your charitable givens department and you have to work with your diversity uh, department. And if you can get mostly African-American employees together and then you send memorandums upline to the upline supervisor and it has just have to make business sense. Uh, no corporations are gonna go over and put uh, half, uh, half a billion dollars into a country just because they wanna help black countries. They're only gonna do it because it's gonna make the corporation money. It's one thing about business. Uh, a business will buy anything, they don't care what color you are. If you're selling them something, but it has to make them money or save the money. And if you can do either of those two things, you will get the contract. Of course, you got to deliver it. But that's what the upper level management understands. You either go, how you, how, what you got, how it's going to make me money? How is it going to save me money? Well, I have a 1.4 billion market in Africa that has disposable income, 20% uh, disposable income. They can purchase our product. And Right now, we have annual sales of half a billion dollars a year. If we expand into Africa, we're going to increase our company sales up to a billion dollars. So that CEO is going to look at that because it makes good business sense. He's going to look at it and try to pick holes in it to see why it won't work. And every time you come back to you saying why it won't work, you got to explain to him why it will work. So what we do at Institute of Sustainable, uh, Progressive Sustainable Development we actually perform those studies and we actually uh, prove, and then we, we even work with the banks to prove that those feasibility studies will work. It's hard for a CEO to tell us it is not possible to do it because it's, it's, it's just proven with numbers. Wow. So, so it, it, you know, and when you talk about the minority council um, folks, you know, we've talked about this on the show. You got to know these organizations, PTAC score, SBA, you have to know them. These are free things. Minority council actually cost you a little bit of money and a little homework, but if you're doing business, it's, it's not even $500. Um, I know in Seattle, I think it was around two something. What, with all that you do, and you've given the reason, I ask all my guests, like, what is their community give back that they are doing or that they want to do in the future? And it seems like this whole project is that. So I need you to like dig deep and say something that's just out of this world that you want to do or something you haven't told us already, because I want people to know since it's not about the money, what it is about, but how your mind works and, and that everybody successful is giving back you know, in some way? Well, the way I give back is, um, you know, I, I mentor a lot of business owners and 
I do it for free. I don't charge for it. And the only thing I ask my pay is that they tell somebody else that looks like them. What I tell, what I, what I give, what I show you, I want you to tell to someone else who doesn't know what I just gave you. Like I teach people how to, I teach people how banks work. I teach people how to uh, get a, a line of credit from a bank. I tell you, I had to start out with $10,000 and in three years, your business is going to be worth a million dollars. I teach you how to, um, if you got $100,000, then how you can actually get $300,000 from the bank. Right? Those are secrets that white people have been doing for years. And we don't know about it. No one at the breakfast table ever told us about it. No one at the dinner table told us about it. But, you know, they've been doing business for 3,000 years and they have um, business principles that they've been implementing for years. And I, when I was at Dartmouth, we were taught those 3,000-year-old uh, principles that every white person knows. Well, I won't say every, I'm speaking generalities. Most white people know that's in business and those that's not in business. And those are things that they do and they're not even conscious of even doing it. But they do it because that's just how throughout centuries and decades, that's what they, it's just been passed down to them. You know, like, uh, uh, like a lot of people shop on, just to keep it simple, like a, a lot of people, you know, you go buy a used car on a used car lot. You know, the car costs $5,000. The sticker price is $5,000. Okay. Every white person goes on that car lot knows that is not what they want for that car. Every white person knows when they go to buy that car, they only want between $4,000 and $5,000 for that car. But if you give them $5,000, they're going to take it. But they do not expect you to come up there and say, I like this car. How much is it? $5,000. Then you write the check. Right, they 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 shocked at that. They don't expect that. That's not their culture. Well, see, we don't know that. We 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 go in there. We just know that you know it's uh, five thousand dollars. Right, the white man said it's five thousand dollars, so it's five thousand dollars. I got paid for it. So we don't know what uh, the business that European culture it does not mean $5,000. You buy something on eBay, you buy something on Craigslist, white person selling it, that is not the price they want for it. You know, it's always less than that. Always maybe uh, how, how three do we quarters know of that? We don't know it because we never were part, we've been on the margins, on the fringes of the society. We just never knew how the economy, economics work in the white community. But we deal in the white community daily. We just not privy to the rules of it. We're on the outside. Hmm. So those are those are those are things and secrets that you know. It's like when you go buy a house, and you know, uh, you know. A lot of black folks, we walk in the house and, oh, it's really nice in here. It's, you know, it's really good. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I love the carpet. I love the cabinets. 
I love, you know, and they told us at Dartmouth, that's not what white people do when they buy a house. They go in, even if they love the house, they always find something wrong in the house. <laughs> even if there's nothing wrong in the house, you say something wrong with the carpet, something wrong with the cabinet. You never say it's nice because if it's nice and I'm asking for 300,000, that means you got to give me 300,000 because you said it was nice. You didn't tell me nothing was wrong with it. You say, oh, this is nice, right? But they don't do that. You know, they, they go in and they find, you know, it's like, oh, I need to put a new roof on. You know, I, I, I got I to paint this room. It's white and it's got to be green, right? And what they're doing is called, <clears throat> it's called strategies of negotiation. So now once I realize that I see the house, I like the house, it's priced right, okay? But I know the price that they ask for is not the price they want. Okay, but I can't just say, you know, I'm just gonna give you 250,000 for the house. I gotta have reasons for it. So, I, so I'm gonna say, I gotta put in new cabinets. It's gonna cost me, I want some really nice cabinets. It's gonna cost me $14,000. I wanna change that carpet in there. And that's a really nice carpet, but I swear the color just won't go with my decor and my furniture. So I'm gonna have to put a new carpet in there and that carpet's gonna cost me another 14, 15,000. So you come up with all of these things, the reasons why the price needs to be lower than it is. And that's what has to, what's happening in the white world every day, but not in our world. We go in and we're just taking total so, advantage. So, so let, me, let, me push, let me push back, because you're one of the few people that you'll understand this and you, you have that world experience. The way you're saying, you know, um, white people buy things, when you go to Africa, you see the same thing when people, People are even trying to buy underwear or food and they'll say they don't want to pay the price advertised right and and negotiation and haggling is part of their culture so it is a is it a white black thing or is it a cultural thing how we are as americans uh, used to buying inside of our you know our culture because when you go to cameroon you know, I know my wife has a problem with everything and her mom has a problem with everything and her father has a problem with everything they see because they want it at half the price that it was offered at. Well, that's haggling. That's more tourism. Uh, that's more tourism because I go with you in the, uh, you're in what you call the tourist trap. Okay. And every, everybody, every tourist already know. No, we're not tourists. We're not tourists in Cameroon. No, no, we're not tourists in Cameroon. And we, they're from there. Okay, but that's the tourist mentality. Is and like yeah. when you go to the market. When you go to the market in Africa, mm -hmm. that's like being in uh, Pike Place Market in Seattle, mm -hmm. in a tourist trap, pretty much. Okay, but it's the market. It's the market, and so. It's understandable that there is no set price. There's no market price. The market price is the price that you're willing to pay. And so you're able to negotiate and haggle those prices. But what I'm talking about is, is, is like, uh, like a societal rule about, how, about the art of negotiation in the Western world, okay? Not like you know, just haggling for prices. It's just that it's a rule that if you um, if you want to sell something and you're white, you just automatically ask for more money than it's worth. It's just what you do. You know, this is normal. 
where in our world was different, you know, if I want $25 for these pair of pants, that's what I want. I don't think about, I'm going to ask for $35, but I really only want 25. We don't think like that. They do. You know, that's what I'm saying. They do. So, uh, yeah, like if you go into Africa and we're talking about going in there business-wise, okay, you're not going to set that price like like a white person would set that price, you know. He, he's going to say, I want it at this amount, but I might get this amount. He's not going to do that. We're going to say, okay, well, the computer uh, cost me 250 bucks. I want to pay, I want to sell it for $300. Okay, we just have a markup. Our markups is not even uh, for wholesale, then it goes to resale, okay, the producer. The producer's price, when the, from the producer to the wholesale is marked up 50 cent, 50%. From the producer to the retail is marked up 50%. Okay, that's standard business, okay? We don't do that, right? We don't do that. So if I, if I, if I decide I want to go on a wholesale, I already know when I buy from the producer, it's going to cost me 50% more. I mean, I'm going to sell it at 50% more. Okay, like for instance, uh, nowadays they have the marijuana things and people are growing marijuana. So the guy who grows the marijuana, he sells a pound of marijuana. I don't know what it costs. It's just say a thousand bucks. He sells it for a thousand bucks. If I buy from him and I'm gonna go in mar marijuana retail, I have to give him a thousand for it. I know I'm automatically selling it at $500. This is dialed in. It's just automatic stuff that, that uh, we do in the business, you know? But as Blacks, we don't do that. We buy for $1,000 and we say, okay, if I'm, I might make 1200 off of it or I might uh, not put as much, you know, if I sell a, a eighth of a gram or whatever, you know, I'm gonna sell it a little more, uh, sell a little less in my community, a little more in the white community. So there's a, those are out. Uh, they're not written policies, but it's just how we think because we just try to pay the rent. We just want to pay the rent and the bills. You know, we don't, we're not business minded, structured. We're just trying to pay the bills. We want to buy something, sell it, and make a profit. There's no rhyme or reason what the profit should be. We just, we just buy it. I was talking to a guy the other day. He was in Sierra Leone. He was an American citizen, went to Sierra Leone, and we had a, a deal for fish. I think we may have talked about that. And he wanted, uh, and he wanted, and I'm more corporate. I think corporate. So he he wanted. Uh, he had to just go find the price of the fish. It was twenty six thousand pounds of fish. He just need to find what was the selling price of that. And then from there, we would draw up the contract. And he would not go get it because he said he needed to be paid. Because he had to get a taxi, he had to get a taxi, and he had to do this, and he had to do that, and I got to be paid before I do it. And so uh, I'm corporate, so I'm like, I'm just asking you to find something. It's automatic to me that whatever you find, if it's ten thousand dollars, you're gonna put a three percent finder's fee on it, three percent to five percent finder's fee. I'm just automatically thinking the guy noticed, uh, but but he didn't know. It. He felt that he needed to be paid off the top. And so he didn't get the deal. So we ended up having to give the deal to a Lebanese person in Sierra Leone. And that's the thing that um, 
you run into, you know, you want to help, but then people won't allow you to educate them. So, but you need to develop, you need to deliver a product because you got a, a client, I got the customer waiting. So you got to go get it where you got to go get it to. And uh, it was worth $78,000, but I didn't want to sell it to let a Lebanese person make the sale. But I had a client that's waiting and he's going to do that every month. So I had to deliver it. Now we can go back and work on this Leonian and teach him how it works, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's, it's very interesting how business, every place you go, it can be done different and why oversharing information of this is how we do business. And if you do business like we do business, we can do business um, is what I always like to tell people. I could give so much. I'm not... I'm going to let my audience know you're going to see this gentleman if he's so willing on other channels, even bigger than this, and they're going to take it to um, different conversations. I like to kind of nerd out, get certain, you know, inside the mind, but I also don't want to give them too much because a good storyteller always knows you can leave them with the, uh, you know, the, the cliffhanger. And I, I want to be able to talk to you off air. So I thank you for coming on and giving this part of the game. We can always do this because you have stories on top of stories. Let me know though, are there any books out there they can find you on Amazon that they can purchase that you've written? No, because I don't do things for money. I, I, as I meet my just a regular common guy and I see somebody struggling with something, then I, I offer them advice and I will just give them a, a few hours of my time and that's you know that's what I do best that's what I enjoy and um so I don't I don't, don't write books to make money I don't charge people for money I do legal work for free but everybody don't call me with your divorce <laughs> but I do, <laughs> I, I do I do frugal stuff I, you know because things are really really simple and and um like to start a business and get legalized and stuff it's like it you know, people paid like 1500 bucks for that. And I'm like, gosh, all you got to do is go online, look here, look there, get the form, download it, fill it in. If you can read, go pay 250 bucks at the city and you license to go for business. You incorporate, you know, and, and uh, you know, I explained what an LLC means and, and what S Corp means, C Corp means, and those things. You don't need to pay an attorney for that. That's ridiculous, but people do it. So, but I, I would feel bad doing that because it's so small. It's a small thing for, for to do and to charge people so much money for it. It's like I say, I couldn't sleep at night. You know, I just, it's like, it's simple. It's, it's real simple. But the thing about the reason why it's not simple to most people is because you've never been introduced to it. And the one who has information is king. And so if you don't have information, you know, you, you are, you are um, ignorant to certain things, but most legal stuff is really, really simple. You know, I was teaching them. I'm just saying, I just want to say this because I think I need to say it. I was working with a girl who was uh, having issues of getting child support. No, but, uh, the dad was trying to take the child because the mom didn't have any money and she didn't have no money for an attorney. He was wealthy, uh, working in one of the big major corporations. And so he had all the power and all the money. So he had these hot shot lawyers and she didn't have a lawyer and she had to go to court and she didn't know what to do. So she knew she was going to lose. And I tried to explain to her, right, a, a petition 
if you have the lawyer say, oh, we got to write a petition to the, to the court, right? And, and uh, it, you know, it, and so those are just lawyer words, but when you break it all down, it's, you just need to write a letter to the judge. And, and I told her, just sit down and write a letter to the judge. You're on it, blah, 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 blah. And this is what's happening in my life. This is what's happening in my life. And this is why I think that he should have the kids and I have the kids and she won the case. You know, it's just because things are simple, but there are secrets. There are secrets that's held, especially in medicine, and we'll get into that one day, medicine and law that keeps the poor man down because they use words that don't make sense to anyone, you know? Uh, I got to write a summons and complaint. Okay, <laughs> you know, we got to do a service. I want you to give me seven hundred dollars because I got to serve somebody. And those are words that the common person don't understand. But when you break it down, it's real simple. And then people's like, you know, once you break it down, it's real simple. They're like, oh gosh, I didn't know that. You know, so we were going to do a uh, actually a TV series about uh, <clears throat> where we was going to have a doctor main character and an attorney main character. And then they were running these everyday situations with people who didn't have any of this knowledge. And they would be almost like the Incredible Hulk. I don't know if you ever saw that, but they was, yeah. gonna, be, they was gonna be running from town to town, being chased by somebody. They get in these situations where someone was having an issue and then they would help them, you know, um, by just teaching them the basics of getting through the, you know, getting rid of all the legal needs and the medical needs and just getting down to what you're really talking about. You just need to write a letter to the judge. <laughs> you, know, you know, and the judge got to, he got to answer it. You know, he got to answer it. It's his job to answer it. But people don't know that. So, yeah. Well, the audience, you have got the game. We're going to take this off air. You guys have been blessed. Make sure you like, share, subscribe, tune in. The links will be in the description box, whether you are listening or you are watching this. And we thank you for sharing it because somebody needs to be inspired with all the craziness that's going on in this world today. Y'all be blessed. Are you tired of the rat race in America? Are you ready to visit the motherland to relax and rejuvenate? Are you ready to explore all that Africa has to offer? Then check out the brand new Diversified Game Academy course, Prepare for My First Trip to Africa. Are you worried about being able to afford the trip? We got you. We will show you how to travel either on a budget or as a baller. Learn how to stress the value of the USD. Did you know that 100 United States dollars is worth over 1,000 South African Rand or 10,000 Kenyan shillings? or 54,250 West African CFA. Are you worried about taking your kids? Get the game from Kellen Cash, a bona fide world traveler, having traveled to almost 20 countries, several of those in Africa. Get the game on taking your kids on their first trips. Learn how to find the best tickets, get the visas, and plan your own adventures in Africa. Don't let Eddie Murphy have all the fun. Plan your own coming to Africa trip starring you, produced by you, and featuring you. If you are ready for a life-changing experience, sign up for our course today, Diversified Game Academy. Get prepared and purchase at diversifiedgame.com. Thanks for getting in the game and listening to the Diversified Game Podcast with Kellen, the number one show pairing entrepreneurship with diverse and inclusive perspectives like wine and cheese, bagel and locks, fish and grits. 
Be sure to visit DiversifiedGame.com for all the good stuff. Join in the conversation and discover more content.